Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to week two of Return to Eden. Uh, if you were here last week, you know it was a bit of a fire hose, and all the feedback I received, most of it was really positive and really good, but everybody was like, whoa, that's a lot to think about, and, and it really was. I introduced a whole bunch of concepts and some terminology that we're going to be using throughout this series, and so I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to encourage you, if you have not if you were not here last week or you haven't seen that message, please at least go back and watch that one because we set up some pretty foundational ideas that are going to be really important for the rest of this whole series. Uh, so you can, you can go online, you can find that. Um, but, but really, put simply, the whole story, as that recap video just showed you, it really is ultimately about the fact that the law of Moses, the Torah, is, is, a, is a story that focuses on God's relentless faithfulness to bring his people, humanity, back into his presence, to open the doors again to Eden to bring them back into that mountain garden of his presence. Today, last week was this big overriding intro, and today we are going to look at some specific laws in the Torah uh, to give an example of how that plays out. Um, but before we do that, I just want to remind you that <clears throat> because this is such a deep series with so much to think about, we wanted to offer something that we've done in some of our other BYOB series, the Bring Your Own Bible series in the past, where I'm going to be on Grace, Grace's uh, Facebook page live every Wednesday night throughout this series at 7 p.m. for a, uh, a Q&A time. And basically, it's just a chance for me to answer some of the most frequently asked questions and to, to engage with you and kind of have a conversation about some of the things that maybe you're hearing and thinking about as a result of this series. Uh, this past weekend, we, or this past Wednesday, excuse me, we, we did it, and I had a really, really good time. We were answering questions like, uh, where was the Garden of Eden, and uh, why would God put that second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, in the garden in the first place? Why would he even do that? So it was really interesting. I definitely, at one point, uh, started talking about the space-time continuum, so you never really know what's going to happen in these sorts of Q&As. So if you want to submit a question, and you can honestly submit any question, can't guarantee I'll be able to answer it, but I can give it a shot, you can go to gracechurch.us slash BYOB, and there's a little form on there. You just put your question there, and it comes straight to me, and I'll do my best to try to answer it on Wednesday night, 7 p.m. on Grace's Facebook page. And if you miss it, those, uh, the, the Q&A is kind of archived on Grace's Facebook page, so you can go back and watch them if you're, if you're interested. Okay, all right, like I said, last week, big picture. This week, we're going to dive in a little deeper. And we're going to look at one of the most famous parts of the law of Moses. This is the, the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm imagining if you don't know anything about the Bible, you probably, at least in some way, are a little familiar with the Ten Commandments. This is the, the whole part of the Bible that says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not you know, steal. That, that's the Ten Commandments. Or maybe you've seen in the news, you've seen some of the controversy around a Ten Commandments monument that somebody wants to put up outside of a, a state house or something, and everybody else gets upset, and it's this whole controversy. So even if you don't know anything about the Bible, the, the Ten Commandments are part of sort of our understanding of, of something that's in the Bible. So today, I want to dive a little bit deeper. But here's why. Because I think, in my opinion, most of us, 
Even though this may seem a little familiar to us, I don't think most of us really understand the actual context and the meaning behind these 10 commandments, behind these laws. We miss the fact uh, that these were written in a specific time and they would have meant something to the original Israelites who heard these these laws. So I wanna look at that and I wanna also kind of see if we can fit the 10 commandments into this bigger storyline of the law, of the Bible. And remember, this is a story that you and I are still a part of. So let's, let's dive in and take a look. We're going to look at uh, Deuteronomy 5. There are actually two places in the Bible where the Ten Commandments show up, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. They're almost identical, but the Deuteronomy 1 has a little bit more detail, so we're going to look at that one. Um, but if you're interested, you can always go back and read both and compare them. Um, someone told me last service they did that while I was talking, and I was like, okay, well, you might have missed some of what I was talking about, but that's all right. You can do it after the service too. Um, before we go into the passage, though, I want to just kind of set up something that I just, this is me being, you know, super geeky and nerdy, but I love this. There are patterns at work throughout the Torah, and in fact, throughout the rest of the Bible. And once you start to see these patterns, they start to show up everywhere, okay? They start popping off the page. So let me kind of introduce you to one of these patterns, because if we follow the story to where where the Israelites receive the Ten Commandments, uh, it it follows a pretty interesting pattern. So the the, uh, poetic layer begins like this. In Genesis, the beginning of the story, God brings order out of chaos, Right? That's the very first thing he does. He begins to bring order of chaos. He then makes dry land out of the sea, which again represents order out of chaos. And then he meets humanity on this, in this divine mountain garden of Eden. It's on that mountain garden that he teaches Adam and Eve how that they can find, but also how they might lose uh, fullness of life. And it's at that point that humanity has a choice to make. Right? They've got to decide, am I going to trust God or am I going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad? Well, now, as we look at the story of the Israelites, what we see is that God has rescued Israel from the chaos of slavery. He made dry land out of the Red Sea. We saw that when he crossed the Red Sea. And now he's present on a new divine mountain called Sinai, the, the mountain of Sinai, where uh, God teaches uh, the Israelites how to find and how they're also going to lose, potentially, fullness of life. And as the story points out, at this point, the Israelites have a choice to make. We talked about that choice last week. Choose, are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Which one are you going to choose? So you see that pattern repeat, and I guarantee if you start looking for it, you're going to see that pattern a lot, okay? Now, Let's see what God teaches Israel. And it starts in Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. It says this. this is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. Okay, so a little bit of context. In the ancient world... There were a lot of gods, little g gods, right? In in the ancient world, there were gods everywhere. There were gods, each different nation had a bunch of different gods, and there were regional gods. And each of these gods, they believed, controlled a whole lot of different aspects about our world. Uh, Some of them controlled the weather. Some of them controlled crop yields. Some of them controlled, uh, you know, whether you were going to be successful in battle or not. And the the thinking was, the sort of common knowledge was, that if you were to uh, desire something in this this life, you could worship or make sacrifices to the God that would give you that thing, and hopefully the God would respond by giving you the thing that you want, 
Okay, that was just kind of the way that the world worked and everybody understood it that way. But Israel, Israel was following Yahweh, a different kind of God. And, and yet they were facing this in the midst of a world that believed in all these other gods. So there was this constant temptation for the Israelites to worship these other gods. And it all came down to survival. Think about it. If you were a, a poor farmer, okay, you were subsiding on the, the, the crops that you were able to grow, and all the neighbors around you are worshiping this fertility goddess named Asherah. She had the, they, they would do these like totem poles or big trees that would be, that would be the Asherah. They would worship that idol. If everybody else around you is doing that to ensure a good crop yield, and you know, man, I had a really bad crop last year. If I want my family to survive, my crops have got to be good this year. How tempting would it be to hedge your bets a little bit, right? To, to maybe cover all your bases, worship Asherah just in case, just in case Asherah is able to protect you. This is a, this is a matter of self-sufficiency. That's what idol worship is really all about. And so what this law is doing, no other gods but me, but Yahweh, is it's setting up a mandate in Israel that they are not to rely on their own self-sufficiency. They have got to trust only in Yahweh, in God, for provision. This choice between worshiping other gods or worshiping Yahweh alone, it's the same choice that Adam and Eve had to make between the two trees. It was, it was the question of, am I going to trust God or am I gonna trust what seems good to me? What, what my human wisdom tells me, which is that, man, it really would be prudent to worship other gods and make sure I'm covering my bases. But here's why this commandment is here though. Because trusting in Yahweh is really the only way to find fullness of life. And this isn't God being exclusive or picky. This is God saying, look, I'm the creator of life. All these other gods, all your self-sufficiency, it's a sham. It doesn't actually lead to life. I'm the source of life. Trust me to give it to you. Now today, this commandment seems kind of like a moot point, right? Because we, in general, in our culture, we're monotheists. We really only believe that there is one God. These other gods don't even really exist in our mind. And just to confirm, has anyone made any sacrifices to Marduk recently? No, Baal? Okay, all right, so yeah. We don't really believe in these other gods. So we look at this commandment, and we think that's easy because we only really believe in one God. But, but, when you bring in these ideas of self-sufficiency, this commandment starts to actually matter again. Think about this. How often, when it comes to our own provision or our own survival, how often do we take matters into our own hands? How often do we hedge our bets? I mean, think about it. Think about all the, the things that are available to us. Retirement accounts, security systems for our homes, the stock market, credit cards. Now look, none of those things are, are bad, inherently bad at all. I use those things, right? But how often do we depend on them? How often do, do we turn to those human created things, to self-sufficiency, instead of turning to the creator of life? How often is our own self-sufficiency kind of like a God that we make sacrifices to? Something to think about, something to think about. Okay, let's move on to this, the second commandment, verse eight. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. 
or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and the fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations to those who love me and obey my commandments. Okay, no idols, no idols. That's the second law in a nutshell. Now, it's easy to, to hear that and think that it's just a recap of that first commandment, right? No, no other gods, no idols. And it kind of is that in some scenarios, but it also includes an idea which would have been kind of interesting to consider as an Israelite. They were also not allowed to make any idols or images of Yahweh himself. When you follow the narrative a little bit later in the story, one of the things that they do, actually right after receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites make a golden calf, right? They make this idol and they worship it. Now, some scholars believe that by doing that, they were, and, you know, Aaron says, here's your God that brought you out of Egypt. Now, some scholars think, okay, they were breaking both of those first two commandments. They came up with some other God and they were worshiping him. But some scholars, and I tend to agree with them, actually believe that this was an idol of Yahweh. They were trying to put God into physical form and then worship that form because it was easier to understand, right, than a, than a God who's invisible. Everybody else's gods have an idol, so we want an idol of our own. But this was a problem. This was a problem because, uh, you know, it, it's a really big deal to, to make an idol out of Yahweh because God, he's holy. God is holy. He is other. He's not, not bound to our creation. He's beyond our comprehension. So by creating an idol to worship, whether it's Yahweh or of some other God, we are, are turning away from the, the, the insanity and the craziness of a, of a creator beyond reality, and we're starting to turn that creator into something created. We're, we're taking the divine and we're bringing it under our control. Yet again, we are relying on, on human wisdom, on self-sufficiency to determine what is good and bad. Yet again, we're eating from that second tree in the garden. And we're missing out on the fullness of life that comes from the God who created it all by searching for life in the things that he created. Do you see the distinction there? Now, the next thing that we read in this passage is a little bit uncomfortable, and I want to address it. Because in verse 9, it says, first of all, I'm a jealous God. And then a little bit later, it says, I lay the sins of their parents on their children. That seems a little bit uh, cruel or, or intense. We don't really like that. So let me, let me address that a little bit. So first of all, this idea of being a jealous God. Now, again, this is uncomfortable for us because the way that we think of jealousy, we tend to think of it as kind of like a, a, a petty emotion, right? Jealousy is like, uh, when I think about how much my wife loves Benedict Cumberbatch movies, I'm like, what's that about? Like, I, well, you know, what does he have that I don't have, right? Oh, there goes Dr. Strange. Oh, look out. Oh, got a British accent. Oh, look at me. I'm so famous and so, you know, and I'm like, come on. Like, look at me, right? I just, you know, no, it's fine. It's fine. I got the girl. I win. In your face, Benedict Cumberbatch. But you get the idea. That's what we think of jealousy. It's like, it's like, you know, oh no, what it, that's, that's jealousy. It's petty, but that's not what this word means. Okay, in the whole of the, the Hebrew Bible, in the whole of the Old Testament, this word jealous is only used to describe Yahweh. 
It's not used to describe any humans. This is different than just petty human jealousy. But the word, it actually carries with it this idea of not just jealousy, but of, of being zealous for something, having zeal, having, having passion for something. So when we read that God is a, a jealous God, what, what it's really talking about is the fact that God is intensely passionate about maintaining an exclusive relationship with his people. But again, not because he's petty, not because he doesn't want to share. No, but because God is, he, he desperately wants his people to find life and wholeness. That's what he's all about. Apart from Yahweh, anything else is all chaos and death and disorder. And, and that is what the whole story of Eden points to. Human wisdom, the idea that we are going to be able to define reality for ourselves, worshiping other gods, bowing down to idols, all of that wisdom that doesn't bring true life, it brings death. But Yahweh is zealous. He's, he's passionate about bringing us back from that. That's why he says, I'm a jealous God. I don't want you to worship all that other stuff because I want you to experience life. Now all this stuff about punishing children in this verse, again, this is uncomfortable. Here's how I tend to think of it though. I look at this as humans experiencing the consequences of their actions. You look at the Genesis story. Adam and Eve, they chose to, to not to trust God. They chose to eat from that second tree. And then look what happened to them. Look what happened to their family. Within one generation, you had lying and murder and rebellion. And then it got worse from there with their, with their descendants. It just, it was like a, the consequences began to ripple out into the next generations. When we choose to make ourselves gods, when we choose to, to trust in our own human wisdom, we bring death and chaos into our world and it spreads into the next generation. Any one of you who's been caught in some kind of generational brokenness, you know that this is how it happens, don't you? You look at, you look at families who struggle to break free of alcoholism or, or abuse, or greed, or abandonment, these kinds of cycles that seem to keep coming up again and again and again. The sins of the parents spread into the next generation. That's just a consequence of human wisdom, a consequence of our rebellion. Yahweh, though, he's jealous. He's, he's zealous to bring us back from that, to, to break these generational cycles. He wants to bring us back into fullness of life. Yahweh is a God of boundless grace, or, or as it says in verse 10, of unfailing love. The blessings of God, the life-giving nature of God, that also spreads though. It spreads through the generations. And here in Deuteronomy 5, it says, yeah, the brokenness spreads down to maybe your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but the blessings of God, the love of God spreads for a thousand generations. You see that? God is jealous to bring us back from our brokenness and to bring us into fullness of life, back into the garden presence. But we have to make the choice. We have to make the choice to choose his wisdom and not our own. We're not gonna find fullness of life by anything that these two hands can come up with. That's not where we find it. Okay, let's go to commandment number three. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Now, you may know this one uh, as the way I was taught it growing up. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And what's that all about? 
It's about swearing, right? That's what I always thought. So growing up, I, I made sure that I wasn't going to break this commandment by saying much safer things like, oh my gosh, and darn it, right? That was totally in the clear because I wasn't taking the Lord's name in vain. Turns out that's not actually what this is all about at all. I was wrong. In ancient Israel, this idea of misusing uh, the name of, of God, it was different. It meant using Yahweh's name while doing things that were completely against his character, like, like dark magic or necromancy or even cursing somebody. If you were using Yahweh's name to do those kinds of things, these are kinds of things that, that spread chaos and death into our world. Ultimately, this commandment is about misrepresenting Yahweh's character. Your name in the ancient world, your name had power. Your name had, had depth. And if you were to take Yahweh's powerful name and use it for things that were opposed to his character, that was a big problem. That was a big problem. And here's why. Because not only would you be, you know, breaking the relationship that you have with Yahweh, but you might very well be leading others away from the fullness of life that God is jealous for them to have. If, if you go around saying Yahweh is cursing you, then why would that person want to be connected to Yahweh at all? Do you see how the consequences of that work out? Here's what I find so interesting. You look at today, you look around at all the, the politicians or the you know, celebrities or, or you know, influencers in our world who claim to be speaking for God, who claim that their policies or their, their platforms are something that God wants them to do. If they are misrepresenting the character and the nature of God, they're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You ever think about that? That is crazy to me to think that, that they could possibly, by saying this is what God believes or my God believes this, they could very well be leading other people away from fullness of life. That's what this is all about. Okay, so in the same vein, let's look at number four. And this one is going to seem a little bit out of left field. By the way, they're going to start going a little bit faster. We're not going to be here for like four hours, I promise. Number four, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day, it's a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and his powerful arm. And that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Now, as much as I want to go super deep into this right now, we are going to spend an entire message on this in just a few weeks, and I'm going to be able to bring to you everything I know about the Sabbath that I can fit in 30 minutes, and I promise it's going to be good. For now, I'm going to have to keep it short just for the sake of time. So you're going to have to come back in a few weeks to hear all about the Sabbath, but here's essentially what it means. This law is all about um, the people of God rehearsing new creation, the Sabbath was, was, a, was a place to carve out sacred time once a week so that the whole community could practice, could, could live as if they were living back in Eden. You know, not being ground to dust by the work of survival, not, not uh, you know, taking advantage of each other and, and being in this broken relationship with the earth, but no, but living in rest and peace in God's presence. 
and, and making sure that all of their dependents, their children, their slaves, their animals even, were all given the chance to rest and live in harmony as Eden is meant to be. Sabbath was an invitation for the people to practice fullness of life. So again, we're going to come back to that in a few weeks. We're going to look a lot more deeply at the idea of the Sabbath because I really do believe that there's a lot that we could, ha- we could learn and benefit from if we were to understand it in our own lives. Okay, next we have commandment number five. Now this one, I guarantee, does not fit with the others or it doesn't seem to at first. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your mother, mother and father. What does that have to do with murder and, you know, idol worship and stuff like that? Doesn't that seem a little bit out of place? But when you start to understand that all of these commandments are part of this big overarching story of, of you know, God bringing his people back into his presence, you start to realize that it does actually fit. Remember, God wants to bring humanity back to Eden, to push back the darkness of death and to bring them once again into a place of life. Like it says right here in this commandment, then you will live a long, full life. Fullness of life is the goal here. But, but as I said last week, this is a relationship. This is a, a covenant. God is in a relationship with his people. That relationship needs to be passed on. That, that, that covenant relationship has to be passed on. And so we have to learn from those who go before us, which is why it's the parents' responsibility to pass this relationship on to their children and for those children to then pass it on to their children. This is not, this, this commandment has nothing to do with blind obedience to our parents, especially in situations of abuse and neglect. And it breaks my heart that people have used this commandment to that end, to, to, to demand uh, abusive obedience from their children. Every one of these commandments is about fullness of life. They would never lead us away from that. This commandment is all about listening to the wisdom of our elders so that we as a community can learn how to return to Eden so that we can keep the relationship between God and humanity moving in that direction. So it does fit, in my opinion, after all. All right, the the last five of these commandments, they all have something pretty significant in common. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read all of them together and then kind of talk about them and talk about what they have in common. Verse 17, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. You must not covet your neighbor's house or land, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So here's here's what those last five commandments have in common. Each one of them, Every single one of them has something to do with the possibility of robbing another person of their fullness of life. Let me explain. Obviously, murder, that makes a lot of sense, right? When you, when you murder someone, you are taking away the life that, that, that's not, not ours to take. You're taking away their fullness of life. In the whole narrative, there is no death in Eden. It's not a place of death. It's a place of life. So we should not be spreading death here. That's what this commandment is getting at. Adultery is actually kind of similar. It also steals life, but it's in a different way. It steals life because in Eden, man and, women to get, man and woman together make humanity complete. 
It's their cooperation and their union which makes it possible for humanity to do its job, to serve and protect creation, as Genesis says. The, the relationship, the marriage relationship is a, a model, a symbol of the relationship that God has with his people. So if, if you are to uh, be unfaithful to that relationship, you are sowing divisions into the community. You are, you are spreading a kind of death into, uh, into your, your family. You're robbing another person of their fullness of life. And again, that's not okay if we're trying to return to Eden. Stealing, uh, yet again, it's, it's us eating from that second tree, right? It's human wisdom. It's saying, I think that it would be better for me to have that thing than for you to have that thing. That's what stealing is. And again, you're, you're abusing someone else. You're taking from someone else for your selfish gain, and you are stealing from them fullness of life. You're taking their things. Now, verse 20, this one's a little bit different because we usually think about testifying falsely as just lying. Right? We always say, we just shorten it to just don't lie. But it's actually a little bit more deep than that, and I think a little bit more profound. In ancient Israel, legal disputes were not determined based on like forensic evidence and uh, you know, DNA tests, obviously. And there was no CSI Judea, right? Or Sherlock Cumberbatch. Like, anyway, <laughs> you know, they didn't have any of that kind of stuff. There was no investigative, uh, you know, whatever. Instead, almost all of their legal disputes were determined on the basis of witness testimony. Witness testimony was the basis of their, of their legal system. And remember, this is an agricultural community where people's entire lives were, were bound up with the land. So, for example, if there was a poor farmer and some neighbor of his brought some land dispute up, and all of a sudden they're, they're in, a, in a fight over whose land this field is, all it would take was two other neighbors who would be willing to testify falsely, who'd be willing to say, nope, nope, that land is this guy's, not yours. And suddenly this farmer could be in dire economic circumstances. He could be, could be sold into debt slavery. He could be destitute. His whole family could be affected by this. This idea of testifying falsely, it would lead to potentially a family's breadwinner being imprisoned or, or widows losing their land or, or whatever. It's injustice being lived out. And exactly the opposite of fullness of life. You're taking fullness of life away from other people by testifying falsely in court. The final commandment, verse 21, this one is all about not coveting not coveting, but uh, this is more than just wishing that you had someone else's stuff. Coveting here, this is, this is active desire, is how I'd put it. There's intentionality behind it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a hunger, right? In Genesis 3, when Eve sees the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, it says that she desires it. Well, that is the same Hebrew word as covets. She, she's hungry for it. She wants it. She desires it. And ultimately, she went and she took it, right? I would paraphrase the word covet here as setting your sights on. Don't set your sights on your neighbor's wife. Don't set your sights on your neighbor's house or your neighbor's ox. Don't, don't set your sights on what someone else has. Fullness of life, experiencing the kind of Eden life that we were meant to have, that comes from satisfaction with what God has already given us. When you're hungry, when you're hungry for someone else's stuff, it is a very short walk between that 
and stealing, or between that and adultery, or testifying falsely to steal their house. It is not that far of a walk to actively robbing someone of fullness of life. Okay, so there we go. The Ten Commandments. I hope you're starting to see now as we've gone through these how they fit into this bigger story. Because I think when we do, when we understand that, that this is really all about God's ultimate re relentless faithfulness, when this is about God bringing humanity back into the mountain garden of his presence, I think it changes the way that we understand these laws. These are about fullness of life. When you understand the law in this way, and I would argue that the entire law operates the same way, that's all about fullness of life and God's presence. When you understand that, you realize that the law is not about legalism at all. It's not legalistic. These are not just arbitrary rules laid out by some picky God so that he would know who to zap with lightning and who not to. That's not what these laws are for. If that was all the Ten Commandments were, then here's how you'd apply them. Right? You'd, you'd look at your life and you'd just check them off like a list of moral absolutes. Have I murdered anybody? No. Okay, have I constructed any idols to worship? No, sir. Have I testified falsely in a land dispute? Not that I know of. No, I'm good. Right? That's how you would do it. But when you see the law as a part of a grand story of redemption, you start to see that the Ten Commandments are not the finish line. They're not the ending point. They're the beginning. These are, this is the foundation. This is the bedrock of morality. It's not the end result. As I said last week, Jesus, he understood this. Jesus took the law and he, he blew it out to the, to the farthest extremes that he possibly could. Remember Jesus, you look at it in Matthew 5. He's like, okay, uh, you know, the law says what? Don't murder? Well, I say, don't even hate your neighbor. Don't even hate somebody. In fact, love your neighbor. He took things so, so far at one point, someone even asked Jesus, what, what was, what's the greatest law? You know, they were trying to kind of trip him up and see if he would get stuck in some debate that a bunch of rabbis were having. What's the greatest law in the, in the Old Testament? And here's what he said. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Well, what did we just read about in Deuteronomy 5? A bunch of laws all about loving God completely, trusting him, and laws about loving our neighbor. God, or Jesus is taking these laws and he's taking them to their logical conclusion that we are meant to bring fullness of life into this world. Imagine if we started looking at our own morality in that way. What do we normally do when we, when we think about uh, God rules, right? We think about our, our legalism when we say, am I doing all the right things? Am I breaking any God rules? What, what do teenagers always ask when the topic of sexuality comes up? How far is too far, right? They want to know where's the line so I can get up as close as I possibly can without sinning. What if that was completely the wrong way to look at morality? What if it's completely the other way around? What if the question we were asking is not how far is too far or how much bad stuff can I do without you know, breaking God's laws? What if the question we were asking is how in my life am I spreading fullness of life to others? 
How am I lifting others up? How am I ensuring that their experience of this life is as much like Eden as possible? And how am I trusting God with everything I have instead of turning to my own self-sufficiency? Imagine if those were the questions that we were asking. Imagine what would happen if, if we looked at the life of Jesus and understood that he was modeling what new creation living looks like. If we looked at his life and realized that now that his spirit is within us, we can live the same way. Imagine, imagine what would happen if our community bought into this and we truly believed, truly believed that the door to Eden is back, is open again. If we truly believed that all of us have the possibility and the ability to bring and spread Eden, to spread fullness of life into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our workplaces. We are life people. We bring life, life bringers. Imagine if we were a people as Christ followers who didn't just avoid doing bad stuff, but dedicated our lives to making our world look a little bit more like that mountain garden.